Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. A few years ago, when I caught my son playing a computer game right after school, I was sure he was breaking our homework first rule. As it turns out, he was doing his homework. His teacher had assigned each student to log onto a site that let kids compete with peers all over the world to duke it out over math problems in real time. Awesome. And now digital games are making the leap from homework time to classroom time, helping students learn and practice math, science, reading, and history skills. There's even a video game that lets you wander around Thoreau's Walden Woods and fish in his pond. While many parents who didn't grow up learning this way might find this all a little strange, my guest has been looking into the research on games and learning and finds many students can benefit from the effort to make education more fun. Greg Tapo is education and demographics reporter for USA Today. His new book is called The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. He joins us as part of KERA's American Graduate Initiative. Greg, welcome to Think. Hey, thanks for having me. How commonly are digital games used in American schools today? You know, um, I was surprised to see how often they're being used these days. I think there's a way in which teachers get it in a way they haven't before. Um, I was uh, first expecting it would be very, very, uh, something very seldom used. And kind of wherever I went, I saw teachers, you know, using one or two games, getting excited about games, experimenting with them. Um, I say in the book, you know, I thought there would be just a handful of people I could talk to. And what I found was that I could not only talk to everybody who was using it, but I could never talk to everybody <laughs> who was using them because it, the world, had, this world had gotten so big. Are they being used now to teach skills and facts or mostly as a reinforcement of whatever the human teachers are trying to get across? That's a great question. I th- I think it's changing. I think it used to be uh, games used to be a tool that was used to review what you already knew, sort of digital worksheets, if you will, or digital flashcards. And what I found was that actually the newest titles are really being used to teach concepts, to teach things in a way that we haven't seen before. And that's to me, is much more exciting than just getting better flashcards. Many computer games can easily adjust to the skill level of whoever is playing. Can you talk about the benefits of that? I mean, I think good teachers are always trying to figure out a way to do that and a way to do that sort of invisibly and seamlessly. Uh, obviously, the, a, a good game is going to, you know, as I say in the sort of the beginning of the book, sort of wait until you get it. And if you don't get it, try it again. And if you don't get it that time, try it a third time. Uh, the, one of the things that I think is really great about games is that, in a sense, they are sort of failure machines. They let you fail and try again, again and again and again. And without the worry that someone next to you is going to think you asked a dumb question or or tried to solve a problem and humiliated yourself in front of the class. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Although, you know, what I found doing a lot of the reporting is that uh, kids playing these games together sort of you know, join together to solve a problem. And so there's a really kind of a social component to it. You know, in the introduction, you mentioned that your son was competing with his peers to solve problems. And that's another piece of it that I didn't expect at all. And I I found really exciting. You open the book with an account of a game mascot named Gigi visiting an elementary school in Washington, D.C. And it was like a rock star had come to the Mm -hmm. school. I was amazed because I didn't think anybody knew who Gigi was. 
and this enormous six-foot pink, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of a Mickey Mouse, if you could imagine, one of those sort of Disneyland Mickey Mouse characters, but it was a penguin with sort of cross-eyed, crossed eyes and uh, big flapping uh, fins, walks through the hall of this school, and everyone knew who she was, everyone, and they were just absolutely delighted to see her. And she is the um, the little character that responds when they're playing, I guess it's a math game, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called ST Math, Spatial Temporal Math. And it's a, it's a game that's really being used widely, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids using this game at this point. And it, and the I think the importance of Gigi is that she is the sort of indicator, if you will, when you've solved a problem, Gigi appears. And the Gigi doesn't do anything except walk, or actually slide, glide from the left-hand side of the screen to the right. And if your solution is correct, Gigi goes all the way and disappears off the right-hand side of the screen. If your solution is incorrect, Gigi bumps up into a, a barrier, turns around, goes back the other way. So it's her sort of wordless message, try it again. Hmm. And so- Gigi is just absolutely uh, an incredible motivator for kids. Why is that such a motivator? It's not like she's, you know, dispensing an M&M every time they get the answer right mm-hmm. or something. Um, what's happening in the brain when kids get a problem right and see that little penguin? You know, I I think it's just, you know, the, the designer of this game would say that the reward, Gigi is not the reward. The reward is you got the, the problem right. Gigi is just sort of a silent indicator. So you get a very, um, you get a... a Essentially, your brain, the signal is, uh, you know, when Gigi appears and disappears off the right-hand side, you know you got it right. And I guess real-time feedback is is a hallmark of digital gaming. It's something that even in entertainment games is what makes them work. I think that's right. And I think that's something I wasn't really uh, keyed into until I really started investigating this. You know, and this is something that I think teachers have been trying to figure out for years and years. I mean, what is handing back homework, but, you know, giving giving te- uh, students feedback. And they've been trying to figure out a way to, to make this a more efficient process, make this a more seamless process for a long, long time. And I think games have the pen- potential to do that in a way we haven't seen. Contrary to popular belief, you say digital games are not strictly a source of instant gratification, though. And it sounds like the opposite of what we've just been talking about. So explain that for us and explain how games can reward delay of gratification. I mean, I guess it's it's an issue of what, what you consider to be gratification. I mean, you're right that once, let's say, with, let's say take Gigi, for instance, in the math game, you know, if you solve that problem and you get it right, and Gigi walks across the screen, yes, you get a certain kind of gratification. But what the game is actually training you to do is to continue to keep going, to keep solving problems. So in a way, your your gratification is delayed because, you know, you don't get kind of your ultimate reward, which would be the end of the level, until you've solved several problems, until you've gotten them right. So, yes, you get that little hit, of, okay, I solved the first problem right, but your reward, in a sense, is you get another one, <laughs> a harder one, right away. And I suppose if a classroom is, um, you know, everybody's got a, a little workstation or a gaming station and they're playing a game, 
you can't be the kid who who sits back and lets everybody else raise their hands and sort of zones out. Everybody's playing. Yeah, everybody's playing, and everybody's playing as you said, kind of at their own level. Everybody's everybody. I've I've been in classrooms where games like this are being used, and you know, even if everybody starts on the same problem within just a couple of minutes, you see everybody's doing something different because everybody works at a different pace and a different you know have different skill levels that are um, being brought to bear. What kind of background did the designers of these games have in child development and in education theory, that sort of thing? You know, that's really changing in a lot of ways. I I think initially they didn't have much of a background, and I think um, they're kind of developing it, if you will, sort of on the fly. Um, There are some studios that are much more sophisticated than others. Um, For instance, if we talk about the Gigi's creators, you know, those folks are steeped in things like child development. But uh, I think that's probably still the exception rather than, rather than the rule. Um, they're, most game developers are um, are engineers. And I think the world is kind of evolving before our eyes because this is becoming a market that we hadn't seen before. Do all subjects lend themselves equally well to gamification? Yeah, I, I would say... I would say some lend themselves a little better than others. Um, certainly math is something that really, I think, you can make the case very easily for. Something like physics. Physics games are really very advanced at this point. And I would say something like history, um, in which you're, on the one hand, you know, looking at sort of a, a very large body of facts and trying to understand sort of a, a things in a bigger context, that lends itself really well as um, too, you know, some of my favorite games at this point are things like history and civics games because they are able to help students understand things in kind of a bigger way than they ever could before. It's not just facts and figures. It's help me understand how things work together. And that's really kind of exciting. And, I, and you know, I want to talk at some point about the word you just used, which is gamification. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, let's make a, a note to talk about what gamification is and and how some people, I think, would use that word and be comfortable with it, and others would not. Well, let's let's get into that right now. Why is the word problematic? Well, I, I think the word is slightly problematic because it's got some connotation, connotations of, if you will. Um, kind of flawed behaviorism. Um, People use the word gamification a lot to indicate something like the Starbucks card you have in your wallet or, um, you know, something that involves a transaction. You know, people can persuade you to uh, do something if they make it into a game. Um, That's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about helping kids get access to material in ways that they didn't. It's not so much that they're playing a game. Um, and they're not so much, they're not playing a game um, to kind of persuade them uh, to do something. They're they're playing the game just to basically have time with the material. Um, talk about this history game, and I forget the name of it right now, but it basically allows kids or encourages kids to put themselves in the minds of a young enslaved girl um, mm-hmm. before the Civil War. 
And that's actually just one chapter, and it's a series called Mission U.S., and it's a free series uh, uh, for it's basically for sort of upper middle, upper elementary and middle school students. And what it does is actually, at this point, I think there are four or five games. That was the second one. It uh, invites students, as you said, to play a role in, in American history. So the first one was uh, a young boy in revolutionary-era Boston, just before the Boston Massacre. The second one was the slave game you, you mentioned, where you play the role of a young woman who's a slave in Kentucky and who, in the course of the game, escapes to Ohio. And so it's, it's a series of games that essentially invite you to put yourself in the shoes of historic figures. And one of the things I like about these games on the one hand, they are very low tech, if you will, that they they can be played on just about any computer, even a ten year old computer that you might find in your typical elementary or middle school. But on the other hand, they are really, really well researched. There's a lot of work goes into them, a lot of work to make sure they're authentic. One of the um, one of the the, the fun uh, facts was that um, the the third game is about uh, Cheyenne Indians. And they, the game makers decided that they wanted to have all the Indian parts voiced by actual Cheyenne hmm. voice actors. But when they went to find them, they realized that the Cheyenne voice actor is not a uh, a job description that a lot of people could fill. So it, it took a while. They actually had to make several trips out to uh, to Montana and Wyoming to find the folks to voice the game. We're speaking this hour with Greg Topo, who is education and demographics reporter for USA Today and has just written a new book called The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. You can join the conversation by calling 1-800-933-5372. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think, or you can email think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from SMU Summer Youth with hands-on workshops in robotics, Minecraft, game design, and visual arts for students entering K-12 at SMU's Plano campus. Online registration is available at smu.edu slash summer youth. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with USA Today's education and demographics reporter Greg Topo. He's just written a new book called The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. You can join the conversation at 1-800-933-5372, or you can email think at kera.org. You have an intriguing description of a game designed to create a virtual version of Thoreau's Walden. And I'm curious as to whether the game really drives kids to the book or, as has sometimes happened with my children watching a movie, they figure, well, now I don't need to bother with the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a big question. Um, you know, that game is still in development at this point. But I guess the thing that appealed to me about that is, number one, the care with which this thing was developed. And it, it, it's not just a movie. It's not just, um, you know, giving you, you know, an hour or an hour and a half with it. I mean, 
by the time you finish this game, you, you know, you spent, I would say, around six or seven, maybe longer hours with it. So you really get to kind of get your hands into Thoreau's ideas, if you will. And, you know, the hope is that that amount of time and that amount of um, detail spent with the book, or spent with the game, excuse me, will get you interested in the book. And, I mean, it, it is an open question, but, um, I mean, I was really intrigued just having played the game and having realized that I hadn't really read the entire books. And, you know, when, when, when it was assigned in high school, you know, you sort of read maybe a couple of pages or a few excerpts. And when I went back and read it, really discovered kind of how, how fun it was and how what a different kind of book it was than I thought it was. Is the game what, what they call a sandbox game where you can sort of go around and do what you want to do and go where you want to go? Not quite. Um, I mean, it, it's got a little bit of a sandbox element and sandbox being, yeah, as you say, you know, you've got sort of complete freedom. I think of something like Minecraft, you know, where you can sort of build and destroy things as you will. In this game, you are really, um, you've got a certain amount of freedom. You can kind of do what you want to an extent, but you do need to get things done. Um, you do need to feed yourself. You do need to, you know, at the very beginning, you do need to finish that pesky cabin because it's going to rain at some point. And, you know, if you don't have shelter, things are not going to go very well for you. So you you kind of have a, a few requirements. But beyond that, you can really start, you know, kind of living the kind of life you want. You know, the way I describe it in the book is, you know, Thoreau writes that, you know, the first summer he was at Walden, he planted quite a few beans, and it became kind of a burden to him. He he realized he had planted too many beans. So the, the what the game does is invite you to plant beans, if you like, and see what amount of beans is good for you. <laughs> you know, you could... You could you plow, uh, you know, a couple of acres and really be sort of a bean baron, if you like, and, you know, harvest beans and make some money that summer. But the question is, you know, what effect does it have on your overall, your mental health, your physical health? Do you get to spend time, you know, fishing or thinking or reading or wandering around, um, you know, going into town, talking to people? I mean, it really, it's kind of hard for me to just sit here and describe to you because uh, there really are no games like it yet. Uh, even something like Minecraft or other open world games, you know, they they have few elements of this game, but not quite as many. I mean, this is a really interesting system that I think we haven't seen before. So for people who don't know this, Minecraft is a game that uses these very kind of blocky looking graphics and allows kids to sort of design their own world. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the Minecraft opera. Hmm. This was really a surprise to me. I, and I kind of found this towards the end of my reporting uh, on the book. And and you're right. It's a Minecraft opera. And uh, those words, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of people would put those two words together. But what this was is this project um, at Virginia Tech University. This was a, a music professor who wanted to, got a, got a sort of an in-house grant to do an, an after-school education program with the local kids. This is in Southwest Virginia. And she wanted to teach them about opera. She wanted to put on an opera with a small group of high schoolers. Realized she didn't have enough money to both do the program and build a stage set. So she went to a colleague who had some 
experience with virtual worlds and said, is there some virtual world we can do this with, something we can use? She kind of had this sort of hazy idea that maybe there might be. Excuse me. And her colleague said, yeah, of course, Minecraft, let's do it. And the next thing they knew, they had invited this handful of young teenagers in who were already familiar with Minecraft. And they built the set, and they wrote the book, and they they were using some basically arias and, and whatnot from Mozart. So the music was already written. They're basically just writing words to the to the, the Mozart melodies. Um, but they created this entire world of this opera um, and staged it in Minecraft. So, and this is another thing that's kind of hard to describe unless you can really see it. The, the, the players, if you will, the users are controlling the characters on screen and they are paired up, each one of them, with a singer off to the side of the stage who is singing the the score. Hmm. So I, I describe it as sort of a two-person digital operatic karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's really very odd, but I thought it was very beautiful. I mean, it really, as I say in the book, I got kind of a lump in my throat when this when I finally saw this thing unfolding. What I loved about that, too, is that it's really a collaborative exercise. This is not mm-hmm. a dozen kids going into cubicles and sort of shutting down the world. They've got to communicate to get this done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, the way the way um, they describe it um, as in the interviews, they, you know, I talked to people, they, you know, the fights would break out about, you know, the direction <laughs> this thing was going. Um, you know, I mean, that's what we want, right? We, you know, Let's forget all we we know about, you know, whether we like games or we like digital media or whatever. Let's just talk about the kinds of behaviors we want from our kids. And that's something it seems like we'd like. We'd want them to be so invested in it that they get upset when it doesn't, you know, go the way they want it. Um, It really, uh, I I mean, what I say in the book is it was one of the most exciting uh, examples of games and learning that I'd seen kind of because of that, because it was taking kids from the world that they're familiar with, which in this case is something very digital, and bringing them back to the world that we want, which is, wow, you guys love opera now. Hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I thought that was really kind of a wonderful way to think about you know, what was happening there. Greg, what about this? And I'm going to sound like such a spoil sport, but okay. at least something, uh, some of the value of school is teaching kids to apply themselves to things that aren't necessarily fun in a way that I love my job. I think you love your job, but there are aspects of it that, you know, are just hard work and they're not relieved by any kind of game activity. Um, are, are we teaching kids that they shouldn't get really invested unless something is fun? You know, I think if you were to. Um, do you, are your kids gamers? Uh, the boys are. You know, I think if you were to take them aside and ask them, are are the games you play fun 100% of the time? I would bet that they would say absolutely not. Hmm. There's a lot of work that goes into a game. I mean, there's a lot that you have to do to get from point A to point B that isn't necessarily fun. And I think that's, in a way, kind of the point. You know, the... The reason gamers, let's just forget education for a minute. Let's just talk about games, uh, the, the, things, the kinds of things that kids play after school and actually adults play after work. The reason we like these things is not because they're easy. It's because they're hard. And it takes a lot of effort 
to get where we want to go. So in a way, I mean, I, I'm, I hope I don't hope you don't mind. I'm kind of turning your question upside down a little bit. You know, the 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 thing that's the the biggest attraction is that everything is not fun. Everything is hard, and there's fun in there, but it's not going to be a hundred percent of the time. So so that when we so when we get where we want to go, we've got a great deal of satisfaction. What about this? You know, I mean, I have two sons and two daughters, and um, mm-hmm. the girls do play games, but they're different kinds of games. And typically, mm-hmm. I think that's that's pretty normal, right? They're boys and girls, men and women, overall tend to be attracted to different kinds of games. Is there thought about that put into the design of games that need to serve both boys and girls in classroom settings? You know, I didn't see too much of that, um, and it's a really good question. Um, what I found was that the the needs that were kind of on the on the minds of game designers were really more pedagogical. Um, you know, what does a student in general need to need to know? I mean, there might be a few sort of stylistic touches that might appeal to girls rather than boys, but in general, I think it was the 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 games that I saw being developed and the folk, the game designers that I talked to weren't saying, "Okay, this is a girls' game, this is a boys' game." Um, but I'm sure. You know, as this field gets a little more sophisticated, we will be getting some more kind of, you know, folks drilling down into those sorts of uh, questions. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to Paul in Dallas. Hi, Paul. Hi. Yeah, I uh, know a 14, 15-year-old boy who has been uh, playing computer games incessantly, um, for for years, and uh, his schoolwork has been going down, 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 and uh, so he's, so to speak, yanked back into conventional, more, uh, you know, I got a pretty good school. He's sophomore in school, uh, high school, and uh, he's just having a, you know, a wrenchingly painful uh, time. What I'm wondering is, is there a neurological uh, structural brain uh, structural change that takes place? Um, and then a second question is whether or not that's uh, so. Uh, is do some of the games that are coming out now uh, address different subjects: biology, botany, as well as uh, math? And you mentioned uh, history uh, as uh, game uh, type uh, subjects. And uh, if they do, what level uh, can uh, a person use those games to for study? Thanks for your call, Paul. Yeah, that's a good question, or a good series of questions, I guess. I mean, let me answer the the first one, or excuse me, the last one first. And that is that yes, there there's some really excellent science games out there. Um, one of the ones I talk about kind of briefly in the book uh, is a is a game. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, I think it was called Reach for the Sun, um, and it was developed by a studio in in Madison, Wisconsin. And what it invites kids to do is to grow plants. And I think this is again a middle school middle school is sort of a ripe age for this kind of tool. And it it, it um, the story I tell in the book is that the developers were testing this game out and inviting kids to grow a sunflower from seed all the way to bloom. And inevitably, autumn happens. You know, autumn mm-hmm. 
autumn arrives and what the game uh the game says you know okay it's autumn your your sunflower is about to die because it's getting cold out and the uh the, the executive producer of the game said that the, and these are again these are you know 13 year olds boys and girls um got so attached to their flowers that when they realized they were going to die they were just sitting there weeping <laughs> Um, over over these plants, so um, I just love that story. Mm-hmm. You know, but your your the first question was this idea of you know a, a high school or young high school student sophomore who plays games a lot. And I think you used the word incessantly. Um, you know, what does that mean when what does that mean for that kid when they have to go back into the context of school? And I think that's a really really important thing to think about. What I would say, I mean, my reaction to that would be, I think we need to think about the two experiences that that kid is having. On the one hand, the games are engaging him in a pretty thoroughgoing way. And if he's struggling in school, I wouldn't wouldn't blame the game necessarily, necessarily, but I would ask, you know, what is school not providing that the game is providing? Um, which is not to say that school needs to be more like a game, but what are the, you know, how is the game reacting to that kid on a minute-to-minute basis that is satisfying that maybe school isn't? Does that make sense, Paul? Um, let's see if Paul's still on the line with Paul's us. Still Does that make sense, Paul? That makes sense. Is uh, Khan Academy or uh, uh, perhaps another uh, uh, online school, what what mm-hmm. what would we call them? Uh, do they are are there agency schools that uh, service such kid? My my temptation is to say to mom and dad, hey, you know, do something else for the kid. I mean, he's he's, mm-hmm. he's wrenching. He's he's in this extraordinary uh, pain and still mm-hmm. uh, twisted, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, my—I mean, to put my sort of my uh, my counselor hat on, uh, and I'm not a licensed counselor. I mean, I guess the thing that I would want to do would be to sit the kid down and talk about what what his experience of school is. You know, what is it that's so wrenching, and what are the what are the issues with that? Um, I mean, without getting too much into into any one case. I mean, one of the cases I I try to make in the book is that games are appealing because they provide a, an experience for kids that's predictable, that's fair, um, that, you know, in a sense, believes that they're going to succeed. And, and and by the way, I mean, one of the kind of the bedrock ideas of this world is that they're not easy, as I've said. They're hard, and they're, you know, it's, the, the idea is hard fun. Um, so you're not we're not lowering our expectations of kids. We're just we're having very high expectations, we're raising the expectations, but we are asking them to get to that spot, get to that high spot in a different way, through a different series of uh, you know, transactions, if you will. We have an email here from Gus who says, When I was in school we played Oregon Trail. I'm assuming it was to learn history. Does that game still serve a purpose? Um, that game is actually still around. Um and it's, believe it or not, uh, it's about, it's almost 45, I think it's 44 years old, the Oregon Trail. Um, I actually interviewed one of the uh, designers of that game. 
It was originally a board game developed by a couple of teachers in Minnesota. And one of my favorite lines from that interview is he, he called it um, Dungeons and Dragons in a Covered Wagon. <laughs> Better graphics today, I would imagine, than the earliest yeah, computer iterations. You can actually get it on your iPad now, I think. <laughs> We are speaking with Greg Topo. He's education and demographics reporter for USA Today, and he's just published a book called The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. Join the conversation at 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from SMU Summer Youth with hands-on workshops in robotics, Minecraft, game design, and visual arts for students entering K-12 at SMU's Plano campus. Online registration is available at smu.edu slash summer youth. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. As part of KERA's American Graduate Initiative, we're speaking this hour with USA Today education and demographics reporter Greg Topo, author of The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. Greg, do awesome games in school or at home that have an educational value make kids less eager to read? Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, the longer answer, I would say, is it depends what the game is. Um, I mean, there are some games that require actually a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and a lot of the same sorts of behaviors that we want kids to be engaging in when they're reading, let's say, just a, you know, a book or a magazine article. Um, so, so not necessarily. I mean, I you know, I began this project because I was interested in what was happening to reading in America. And what I found was that you can't really kind of break it down between games versus books. They're not the opposite of one another. Um, and that took me a while to really kind of think through. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's go to Brett in Louisville. Hi, Brett. Hey, Chris. Uh, yeah, I have a question. Um, do you think that digital um, learning encourages kids to discover and explore and engage more than the versus the current model of you know memorization and regurgitation? And is there any real studies that back that up? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, on the face of it, I would say absolutely. Digital learning has the potential to to bring a different kind of learning. To school, it doesn't necessarily um, just because something is digital, just because something is, you know, not flat on a piece of paper, doesn't make it, um, you know, less of a sort of a task of drudgery or memorization. I mean, you can have, as I said, kind of at the beginning of the program, you know, you can have really advanced games that all they do is present kids with a digital flashcard, and I would say we really, if if that's the goal, we really haven't. Uh, we really haven't gotten very far. We, you know, what I'm interested in, and I think what a lot of people in this field are interested in, is figuring out different ways of presenting material so that it's not just flashcards. It's not just sort of, um, you know, gamified uh, review. 
1-800-933-5372 is our number. Hassan's on the line now in Irving. Hi, Hassan. Hi. I just wanted to um, ask the um, the author that did he think or does he think that there is a to some level um, a limitation to uh, education that uh, you receive through gaming, and that the examples that he mentioned, such as a sunflower or I think some of the other things seem pretty basic, but as you move into the higher levels of education, um, uh, such as in mathematics, calculus, or chemistry, mm-hmm. or even some of the more advanced biology, is there a uh, certain limit, a limitation to uh, education that comes from gaming? And would it be, um, could it be that someone who is uh, reliant on a way, on, on education through gaming, could not achieve success at those higher levels because there's just absolutely no way to present it in a gamified way. That's a really, really good question. And I would say uh, my first reaction would be the current games we have, there's not much in the way of very advanced material. Um, but Which is not to say that there won't be or there shouldn't be or there isn't going to be in a couple of years. Um, one of the examples that I give in the book and it's it's interesting uh i when I read this uh section from the book at readings I've done it a couple of times now uh it describes an algebra game that is recommended it's designed for very young children and um preschoolers have actually found real success with this uh with this game and 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 i if if you want i can um Chris, I can you can just sort of read a, sure. a sentence or two from it. Um, you know, it's it's a really it's 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 a game called um, Dragon Box, and the the scenario is that you are playing this game on your iPad, and you are uh, presented with a dragon in a box, and it's on one side of the screen, and on the other side of the screen are these cards, and essentially the the task of each level is to get rid of everything on the same side as the dragon box, okay? Hmm. If you can imagine that. Yeah. So the dragon wants to be all by himself. And what you soon realize you're doing is sort of a kind of a proto-algebra because, you know, X always wants to be by itself, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so for the first couple of levels, you're just sort of moving and dragging things and matching them up and kind of taking, you know, one card and its shadow card away from one another, so you're subtracting, so you're getting into the idea of negative numbers and the idea of order of operations. And um, what happens eventually is it's a a hundred-level game, okay? So you start the game, you're on level one, by the end you're at at level 100. And um, so what I say is, you know, this this game proceeds through 100 levels with no explanation or elaboration. Addition, multiplication, division, fractions, all of them appear without fanfare or explanation. You play 60 levels before an equal sign appears between the two sides of the board. By game's end, at level 100, you've moved seamlessly, baby step by baby step, from a cute baby dragon eating a spiky two-headed lizard to this. 2 over x plus d over e equals b over x, which you solve fearlessly and perhaps even a bit impatiently in exactly 14 steps. You are four years old. 
Hmm. So that's a kind of game that I think we're going to see more of, that it presents a system that, to Hassan's point, you know, I would say that's a game without much limitation. If you can get a four-year-old thinking algebraically, you know, what can you do for a 16-year-old or even a 24-year-old? Um, I think we're going to start seeing much more thoughtful game designers uh, figuring out these things, thinking about these problems. So to get back to the actual question, is there some limitation to education through gaming? I would say not really. Um, it's really the only limitation is the imagination of the folks designing these things and their ability to get an idea across through a game. Um, I, and not to take too much time on this one question, but I, I think it's a key question. You know, there's another game called Fold It, and um, this was developed by some um, scholars at the University of Washington. And what it does is it takes advantage of humans' natural ability to kind of solve problems, see things visually, um, and, you know, solve visual problems. And what that did was it basically um, created a scenario where players are folding proteins and figuring out the way to fold proteins most efficiently. And it actually became part of a very large research project. Uh, players of this game figured out how to fold a protein in just a certain way um, th that it, um, it essentially solved a problem that science had been trying to solve for 15 years. They figured out this one way to fold a protein in 10 days. So I would say that's not much limitation there. What's the potential for using games to assess student learning um, in a way that would be comparable to the universally despised high-stakes testing we have in schools now? Yeah, I think that's the next frontier in this, and I think it's just starting to take shape. You know, I mean, one of the things that I think m most game players, most gamers would say is, is one of the most appealing things about games is that the game is the assessment, right? You play the game, you finish the level, you beat the game. You don't have to sit for a standardized test at the end, right? It it knows what you just did. Um, and there are actually some very serious efforts um, in you know into looking at this and trying to figure out if we can embed assessment into the things that kids do on a daily basis. We haven't really seen too much in, in a very sort of systematic way. There are a couple of efforts into it. I think that are that are showing some good results, but I think it's a couple of years away till we really are able to swap out, if you will, you know, the end of year math test with a series of games. But I I do think it's coming because I if you just look at the resistance to these tests and the you kind know, of the havoc that they wreak on schools, I think there's no way that to to think that it's not going to come eventually. Let's go back to the phones now. This time we have David on the line in Dallas. Hi, David. Hi. How are you today? Great. Thank you. What a fascinating topic you guys have chosen, one of my favorites. I, I, I was born in 1955. My son was born in 95. And uh, primarily due to my wife's wishes, there was no restraints on my son. So when he started playing uh, banjo and kazooie at age three, his older <laughs> cousins were already pretty much immersed, but they lived in a different city. So mm -hmm. he kept he kept going, and I, I truly believe that uh, due to that and then the Zelda game, which really weren't designed to teach people, but mm -hmm. they structured 
a toddler's brain to where he could do complex math and, and have incredible memory that far outdistances mine, where I mm-hmm. grew up hammering little shapes into blocks and remembering colors and really simplistic child learning. Uh, he was getting challenged with eye-hand coordination, with rules. Mm-hmm. He even kind of learned to read in a rudimentary way because he memorized the text that was coming up on the screen that would ask him to do a certain task. What do you think about all that, Greg? Yeah, well, listen, thanks, thanks, David. Uh, I appreciate the comment, and I think, you know, you're not the only one who thinks like this. You know, one of the things that a lot of teachers would say if you just present them with the kind of learning that is taking place in a game, even as, as you say, you know, a Zelda game or Pokemon or something like that, that's not meant to teach, in quotation marks, you know, they would say, wait a minute, this is just good learning. This is good, what they would call scaffolded learning, right? You get one skill, you master that, you get the next one, and up and up and up and up until you're doing some pretty remarkable things. You know, I mean, one of the things that that I think is kind of a remarkable um, phenomenon is what you said, you know, this idea of Pokemon teaching kids to read. Well, how did that happen? <laughs> and what you realize is that, you know, the, a Pokemon card, I, I don't know if you've ever seen one, um, Chris, but, you know, it is full of information. I mean, it is jam-packed with data. And to be able to interpret that is really incredible skill. So, you know, in a way, without even intending, you've got sort of a literacy curriculum on your hands. Um, And it's all within the context of, you know, can you play this game well with your friends, right? Do you have cards that they don't have? You know, how are you playing them? How are you doing? How are you essentially, you know, progressing in the game? Um, You know, one of the scholars that I cite in the book says, you know, he knows of no... You know, we talk about the, the, the achievement gap all the time, right? You know, he says, you know, there's no Pokemon gap, right? <laughs> you know, poor kids aren't worse at Pokemon than the than the wealthy kids in the suburbs. Um, why is that? Was there, um, I, I, you point this out in the book, and it's, it's I think, worth noting that the teachers have been using games for a long time. They just weren't played on a screen. They made them out of cardboard or they, you know, drew things on mm-hmm. the chalkboard. Um, it's not a, a new concept to teach with games. No, it's not. I mean, I mean, if you really went back, you know, it's not just a few decades. It's centuries and maybe even millennia um, that, that teachers have been using games. I mean, the the idea behind games, I think is that, as I, as I said earlier, the show, they do invite students to access the material, to get sort of both hands into the material in a way that they might not get ordinarily. I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about is this idea that, you know, a kid's life outside of school is full of games. And I think smart teachers have always realized that and tried to figure out, you know, if I want school to be successful... In a way, it's got to look like my kids' lives. Like, like, a kid can't march from their home to their school and have school be absolutely a foreign place. There's got to be some sort of similarity between where the kid comes from and where they're going. And I think games, you know, are they represent, I think, a really promising way to sort of to think about that and to bridge that gap between home and school. Will these someday be like the film strips, the bonging film strips that we had when we were kids, so common that nobody even remarks on them? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, you know, I mean, one of the things that's been helpful for me to think about as I've been kind of thinking through this, even since I've written the book, is that, you know, I, I think one of the 
One of the reasons that games may succeed in a way that other technology hasn't is this. Um, how many of us have film strip projectors in our house? Not very many of <laughs> right. us, right? But everybody has a computer and an iPod or an iPad and those sorts of tools. Greg Topo is education and demographics reporter for USA Today. His new book is The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. Greg, thank you so much for making time for us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer. We had help on the phones today from Gus Contreras, and our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. Contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.